Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Getting everything together right now. I'm okay. situation to get everything sharp. Yeah, it's going to sound like it's me. So, I'm about to go again. Thanks, Clark. 
celebrating Mark, celebrating them okay. Let's get this thing going. Yeah, so we'll go ahead and get the single one. the library not do so All right, let's start now. <clears throat> Talk Recorded live.
So even though 
we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. One day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, 
Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
what I'm saying to you this morning, my friend. Even if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper. Go on out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. If you can't be a pine on the top of a hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of the reel. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. And when you do this, when you do this, you've mastered the length of life. This onward push to the end of self-fulfillment is the end of a person's life. Now, don't stop here, though. You know, a lot of people get no further in life than the length. They, they develop their inner powers. They do their jobs well. Do you know they try to live as if nobody else lives in the world but themselves? And they use everybody as mere tools to get to where they are going. They don't love anybody but themselves. And the only kind of love that they really have for other people is utilitarian love. You know, they just love people that they can use. A lot of people never get beyond the first dimension of life. They use other people as mere steps to which or by which they can climb to their goals and their ambitions. These people don't work out well in life. They may go for a while. They may think they're making it all right. But there is a law. They call it the law of gravitation in the physical universe. And it works. It's final. It's inexorable. Whatever goes up can come down. You shall reap what you sow. God has structured this universe that way. And he who goes through life not concerned about others will be a subject victim of this law. So I move on and say that it is necessary to add breath to length. Now, the breath of life is the outward concern for the welfare of others, as I said. Yeah. Yeah. And a man has not begun to live until he can rise above the narrow confines of his own individual concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity.
sitting there autographing books. A demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, Are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing and I said yes. The next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Hullum Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams say. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, While it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze, because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960, when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream, and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962 when Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up and whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, 
If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
are the chains of hand in hand. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Got my hand on the freedom power. Wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. is what you may call an if faith, and there is a though faith, and the permanent faith, the lasting, the powerful faith, is the though faith. Now the if faith says, if all goes well, if life is hopeful, uh, prosperous, and happy, if I don't have to go to jail, if I don't have to face the agonies and burdens of life, if I'm not ever called bad names because of taking a stand that I feel that I must take, if none of these things happen, then I'll have faith in God. Then I'll, I'll be all right. That's the if faith. You know, a lot of people have the if faith. Jacob found himself in that dilemma once and, and his faith was contingent on an if. And he said, now, if God will be with me and uh, if he will keep me in this way that I go, 
And if God will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. That's the if faith. Jacob hadn't quite gotten to the essence of religion. There is a though faith, though. And the though faith uh, says, though things go wrong, though evil is temporarily triumphant, though sickness comes and and the cross looms, nevertheless, I'm going to believe anyway and I'm going to have faith Anyway, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And old Job got to that point and he had a though faith. He looked out and everything that he had had been taken away from him. And even his wife said to him, now what you ought to do, uh, 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 Brother Job is to curse God and die. God has been unkind to you. And you should have let God know a long time ago that you would only follow him if he allowed you to stay rich. If he allowed your cattle to stay in place, you ought to curse him and die, Job, because he hadn't treated you right. But Job said, Honey, I'm sorry, but my faith is deeper than that. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. My faith is a full faith. And this is the essence of life and religion. The question is whether you have an if faith or whether you have a though faith. You know what this says in substance that, that ultimately... Religion is not a bargaining matter. A lot of people bargain with God. If you just let me avoid pain, God, if you you allow me to be happy in all of its dimensions, if, uh, if, if you don't allow any suffering to come, if you don't allow frustrating moments to come, then uh, I'll, I'll be all right. I'll give you a tenth of my income and, and I'll go to church and I'll have faith in you. But religion is not a bargaining experience. It's not a commercial relationship. And you know, no great experience exists in the bargaining atmosphere. Think of friendship. Think of love. And think of marriage. These things are not based on if. They are based on though. These great experiences are not based on a bargaining relationship, not an if faith, but a though faith. And I'm coming to my conclusion now. I want to say to you this morning, my friends, that somewhere along the way, you should discover something 
that's so dear, so precious to you, that is so eternally worthful that you will never give it up. You ought to discover some principle. Yes, sir. You ought to have some great faith that grips you so much that you will never give it up. Never. Somehow you go on and say, I know that the God that I worship is able to deliver me, but if not, I'm going on anyhow. I'm going to stand up for it anyway. What does this mean? It means in the final analysis, you do right not to avoid hell. If you're doing right merely to keep from going to something that traditional theology has called hell, then you are doing right. If you do right merely to go to a condition that theologians have called heaven, you are doing right. If you are doing right to avoid pain and to achieve happiness and pleasure, then you are doing right. Ultimately, you must do right because it's right to do right. You've got to say, but if not, you must love ultimately because it's lovely to love. You must be just because it's right to be just. You must be honest because it's right to be honest. This is what this text is saying more than anything else. And finally, You must do it because it has gripped you so much that you are willing to die for it if necessary.
It was to see three of the prisoners at Santa Rita, Joan Baez, her mother, and Ira Sanpo, incarcerated there for 45 days for their non-violent sit-in at the Oakland Induction Center late last month, that a very distinguished visitor appeared on Sunday afternoon, January 14th, a day of heavy, low, gray clouds and scatterings of rain. Despite this rain, a large crowd of sympathizers, a couple of hundred I'd say, had assembled about 50 yards down the narrow approach road from the entrance gate to greet Dr. Martin Luther King and demonstrate their support for Miss Baez and her fellow prisoners. After spending over an hour inside, Dr. King spoke to the vigilers outside. Let me say how happy I am to see each of you here today, and I want to commend you for your willingness to engage in this vigil and stand in the midst of this rather inclement weather to express your support for all of those who have been arrested as a result of their courageous actions resisting the tragic, unfair, and unjust draft system of our nation. I've just had the opportunity of visiting my very dear friend uh, Joan Baez, her mother, and uh, our dear friend Ira Sandpearl. And they all send their greetings and their best wishes to you. And I might say they are in good spirits. You know, when you go to jail for a righteous cause, 
Uh, you can accept the inconveniences of jail with a kind of inner sense of calm and an inner sense of peace. And this is the way they are accepting that experience. They have supported us in a very real way in our struggle for civil rights, our struggle for freedom and human dignity all across the South. And I decided that in a way or rather as an expression of my appreciation for what they are doing for the peace movement and for what they have done for the civil rights movement, I would take time out of my schedule to come out uh, to see them, to visit them, and let them know that they have our absolute support. And I might say that I see these two struggles as one struggle. There can be peace. There can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. Uh, people ask me from time to time, aren't you getting out of your field? Aren't you supposed to be working in civil rights? And they go on to say the two issues are not to be mixed. And my only answer is that I have been working too long and too hard now against segregated uh, public accommodations to end up at this stage of my life segregating my moral concerns. For I believe absolutely that justice is indivisible and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I want to make it very clear that I'm going to continue with all of my might, with all of my energy, and with all of my action to oppose that abominable, evil, unjust war in Vietnam. Now let me say this, I see some very dangerous trends developing in our country. Trends of oppression and uh, repression and suppression. And I see a definite move on the part of the government to go all out now to silence dissenters and to try to crush the draft resistance movement. Now, we cannot allow this to happen, and we've got to make it clear. We've got to make it clear that to indict a Dr. Spock or to indict a Bill Coffin and the other courageous souls that have been indicted will mean indicting all of us if they think that this draft resistance movement is going to be stopped. And let us continue to work passionately and unrelentingly to end this cruel and senseless war in Vietnam. I don't have to go through all of the things that this war is doing to corrode the values of our nation. Suffice it to say that the war in Vietnam has all but torn up the Geneva Accord. 
It has strengthened the military-industrial complex of our nation. It has exacerbated the tensions between continents and races. And the war in Vietnam has placed our country in the position of being against the self-determination of the Vietnamese people. And then it has played havoc with our domestic destinies. And I can never forget the fact that we spend about $500,000 to kill every enemy soldier in Vietnam, and we spend only about $53 a year for every individual who is categorized as poverty-stricken in our so-called war against poverty, which isn't even a good skirmish against poverty. And I say that that is a great need, a need for a revolution of values. And I say to you in conclusion, and I say to you in conclusion that we must continue to stand up and we must continue to follow the dictates of our conscience even if that means breaking unjust laws. Henry David Thoreau said in his essay on civil disobedience that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And I do not plan to cooperate with evil at any point. Somebody said to me not too long ago, uh, Dr. King, don't you think you're hurting your leadership? by taking a stand against the war in Vietnam, aren't people uh, who once respected you going to lose respect for you? And aren't you hurting the budget of your organization? And I had to look at that person and say, I'm sorry, sir, you don't know me wrong by looking at the budget of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or by taking a Gallup poll of the majority opinion. Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but he's a molder of consensus. And on some positions, Howard is asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. And that is where I stand today, and that is where I hope you will continue to stand so that we can speed up the day when justice will roll down like waters all over the world and righteousness like a mighty stream. And we will speed up the day when men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations will not rise up against nations, neither will they study war anymore. And I close by saying, as we sing it in the old Negro spiritual, I ain't going to study war no more. <laughs> Yeah, they want that.
looking to find out something about his visit to We had a very... Can you hear? Yeah, that goes through in the music. Uh-huh. We had a very fruitful visit with Miss Baez. The visit was mainly to express our support to her for uh, her courage, for her willingness to stand up and face suffering and sacrifice in order to make it clear that the position of our administration is totally wrong in Vietnam, and in order to make it clear that war should cease and people of goodwill must work to bring about an end to war everywhere.
presiding friend, Ralph Abernathy. All right, sir. To all of the distinguished Americans seated here on the rostrum, my friends and co-workers of the state of Alabama, and to all of the freedom-loving people who have assembled here this afternoon, from all over our nation and from all over the world. Last Sunday, more than 8,000 of us started on a mighty walk from Selma, Alabama. We have walked through desolate valleys and across a trying hill. We have walked on meandering highways and rested our bodies on rocky byways. Some of our faces are burned from the outpourings of the sweltering sun. Some have literally slept in the mud. We have been drenched by the rain. Our bodies are tired and our feet are somewhat sore. But today as I stand before you and think back over that great march, I can say as Sister Pollock said, a 70-year-old Negro woman who lived in this community during the bus boycott, and one day she was asked while walking if she didn't want to ride, and when she answered no, the person said, well, aren't you tired? With her ungrammatical profundity, she said, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. That's right. And in a real sense this afternoon, we can say, that our feet are tired, yes, sir. but our souls are resting. They told us we wouldn't get here. Mm -hmm. Now with those who said that we would get here only over their dead bodies. Well, yes, talk, talk. Yes. All the world today knows that we are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't going to let nobody turn us around. Now it is not an accident. One of the great marches of American history should terminate in Montgomery, Alabama. Yes, sir. Just ten years ago in this very city, a new philosophy was born of the Negro struggle. Montgomery was the first city in the South in which the entire Negro community united and squarely faced its age-old oppressors. Yes, sir. Well. 
Out of its struggle, more than bus segregation was won. A new idea, more powerful than guns or clubs, was born. Negroes took it and carried it across the South in epic battle. Yes, sir. That electrified the nation well. and the world. Yet strangely, the climatic conflicts always were fought and won on Alabama soil. After Montgomery's heroic confrontations loomed up in Mississippi, Arkansas, Georgia, and elsewhere, but not until the colossus of segregation was challenged in Birmingham did the conscience of America begin to bleed. White America was profoundly aroused by Birmingham because it witnessed a whole community of Negroes facing terror and brutality with majestic scorn and heroic courage.
And from that day on, that boycott was more than 99 and 9 tenths percent effective. I remember that Monday morning when I was subpoenaed to be in court, the chief defender. Many things ran through my mind. And I started thinking about the people. All day long trying to think of something to say to the people. Finally, I tried to talk. My words were fumbling a bit. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the gold of justice and Let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation is completely crumbled in Montgomery, we will be able to live with people as our brothers and sisters. I'm able to carry on. 
I hope you enjoyed the MLK celebration. We're going to get more deep into the uh, bus boycott. I am the uh, CEO of Viper Network, and so here it is.
which literally electrified the nation. And that was the day when we decided that we were not... Let me get back to that right there. That's someone said about the bus boycott and that right now. And from that day on, that boycott was more than 99 and 9 tenths percent effective. For several weeks now, we, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, have been involved in a non-violent protest against uh, the injustices which we have experienced on the buses for a number of years. We uh, feel that we are right, we have a legitimate uh, gripe, a legitimate protest, and we feel also that one of the great glories of American democracy is that we have the right to protest for rights. We will do it in an orderly fashion. This is a non-violent protest. We are depending on moral and spiritual forces using the method of passive resistance. Struggle alone. But God struggles with you. 
Freedom is never given to anybody. For the oppressor has you in domination because he plans to keep you there and he never voluntarily gives it up. That is where the strong resistance comes. We've got to keep on keeping on in order to gain freedom. It is not done voluntarily, but it is done through the pressure that comes about from people who are oppressed. Privileged classes never give up their privileges without strong resistance. The executive board of the Montgomery Improvement Association recommends that the 11-month-old protest against the city buses will be called off and that the Negro citizens of Montgomery, Alabama will return to the buses on a non-segregated basis. It is further recommended that this return to the buses will not take place until the mandate from the United States Supreme Court is turned over to the Federal District Court. We have the assurance from authentic sources that this mandate will come to Montgomery in a matter of just a few days. For those three or four days, we will continue to walk and share life. I hereby defy ruling handed down by the United States Supreme Court ordering desegregation of public carriers. Alabama state law requiring segregation of races on buses still stands. As long as I am president of the Alabama Public Service Commission, I am going to see that our segregation laws are upheld. I have this day issued orders to the chief of police and the police department.
think I can say concerning this great gospel singer in our midst, our dear friend, my great friend Mahalia Jackson, that a voice like this comes only once in a millennium. <laughs> If there is any doubt in anybody's mind concerning whether we have a movement here in Chicago, you ought to be in this church tonight. Why that 
jury of six black and six whites after three hours came back and found that white boy guilty of conspiring to kill Dr. Martin Luther King. And they went further than that. And they also said there was some co-conspirators, black folks, unnamed, that was involved. I want to show you a little three-minute clip. Of the minister that Dr. King was going by his house for dinner. He was due at seven, but they had to move it up because seven would be a little too dark to shoot somebody. So they moved it to six o'clock. Two years ago at a press conference in Memphis, I get a call. And they said, so and so, so and so is thinking about killing so and so, so and so. I said, what? Well, he said something at a press conference, said, put him on the phone. I said, whatever you do, get that film. Because once NBC realized what this brother can slip and say, we will never get our hands on the person. What you're fixing to see now went into the evidence in the King trial where they brought a wrongful death suit now. Explain that to you quickly in a minute. But what you're fixing to witness now is the, the man who came by to get King to take him to dinner. And 30 years later at a press conference, he slipped because God do baffle your mind sometimes. You look. about marching from Memphis to Jackson or Jackson to Memphis, there were no hotels. You, you stayed in churches, you stayed in people's homes. And, and, and that's how we got over, that's how we got through. Uh, the struggle was a very, it was a spiritual struggle. You couldn't pay people to do what we had to do. You couldn't pay people to stand before mad dogs and fire hoses and, and billy clubs and, and cattle prods. It was strictly uh, a spiritual and moral movement. So we wanted that dimension to be in the pilgrimage to Memphis. We will revisit the mountaintop speech site. That's the Mason's Temple, where Dr. King made his last address, which he almost didn't make, because the night that uh, we were having that rally, there were tornado warnings, and he was behind on the Poor People's Campaign. And he said, you guys go on over and have the rally. I want to stay at the motel and work on the Poor People's Campaign. When we got there and Dr. Abernathy walked in and Jesse Jackson walked in and I walked in and others, people started clapping because they thought Martin was behind us. And so Ralph's preacher sent, said to him, this is not our crowd. And he went to the phone and called Dr. King and that any of the marches that, 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 that we had in those days, you have an opportunity to bring the children and bring the family and march with us 
And when I finished sharing with them the last hour of Dr. King's life, I hurry. But that gave me the wonderful privilege of spending the last hour on earth. Three preachers in a room, Abernathy, King, and Kyle. And we spent that last hour together in room 306 at the Lorraine Motel. The press is always curious and writers, what went on? What did you talk about? I say, we just talk preacher talk. What preachers talk about when they get together? Y'all pay and all for what you're fixing to hear now. About a quarter of six, we walked on the balcony and he was talking to people in the courtyard. He stood here and I stood there. Only as I moved away, so we could have a clear shot, the shot rang out. Thank you. I turned around and then knocked him back on the balcony. Listen. Oh, 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 oh. Wait, wait, listen, listen. about a conspiracy and this piece of film is introduced. I stood, he stood here, I stood here only as I moved away so he could have a clear shot. The shot rang out. This was the brother that he was going by his house for dinner. Now, to my brother Maddie, you will have a copy of this tape. I'll get it back to you. And what you should do is make copies. See to it, because this is a very valuable. And y'all need to send this tape to people all over this country. And so, this was the trial that went on that the press didn't want to report because they couldn't. Huh? They couldn't. And so we have to stop getting mad and upset because the same system that's killing us refused to tell us the truth. You have to use your own given, God-given intelligence. If we was all over in Germany today walking down the street and we see this big old building and it's named after Adolf Hitler, you don't have to be too smart to realize something evil is going on inside that building. How come you don't understand that when you walk down in Washington D.C. and see that big old brand new FBI building named after J. Edgar Hoover? How come we don't know something evil is going on inside that building? Let me briefly tell you some of the things that you heard. The trial should have lasted a day and a half. It lasted 30 days. The black press in Memphis didn't even show up. Let me tell you how this trial came about. About six years ago, 
a white man named Lloyd Jones, who probably, now, this is just my philosophy, believe, who probably was told they picked him to blame the king murders on you. So he went to ABC. And they did a whole section with him, telling them how he was involved and what the conspiracy and who it was. And then they never ran. And so now he's running for his life. So he goes to the King family. And he tells them the same thing that he told ABC. He tells them three times and the fourth time, Andy Young. And they filmed it, they taped it. And he said, I was given $100,000 by Frank Liberto, who was the mafia puppet who ran Memphis for the big mafia boys out of New Orleans. So it was Frank Liberto, he said, that gave him $100,000 to set up the whole mechanism for killing King. And the building right behind the Lorraine Hotel with the courtyard bumped into, Lord Jarwis had a restaurant called Jim's Grill. He also said that at the first meeting, here's who was there, so-and-so was there, so-and-so was there, and let me tell you, there was some black folks there too. Never 
loving you. Yeah. You gotta operate the easy way. I made a cheat today. But you made it in a sleepy way. Selling crack to the kids. I gotta get paid. But well, hey. well, that's the way it is. Come on. Come on. That's just the way it is. Things will never be the same. That's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. March in Memphis, Tennessee, garbage workers who were mostly black and grossly underpaid were out on strike. The Kerner Commission had just released its famous report, warning our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. These men who were really at the low rung on the, on the totem pole, just got tired of being treated less than men. And if you notice that sign they had, it didn't say peace, it didn't say freedom, it didn't say justice. All it said was, I am a man. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Martin Luther King, the nation's preeminent civil rights leader, came to Memphis to express moral support for the men on strike. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest their rights. On March 28th, the Memphis police were out in force. About 12,000 demonstrators gathered to march down Beale Street in support of the garbage workers. 
King was planning to lead a poor people's march on Washington that summer, an ambitious new campaign focusing on economic justice. Memphis was supposed to be the dry run. There was a group of young guys called the Invaders, some of whom were on the FBI's payroll. We didn't know that at the time. But they were there really to stir up trouble. These young guys had taken the sticks off of the placards, started breaking out windows, and they started the riot. And you know, once you start it, everybody gets in it. And rather than try and isolate the people who were rioting, the police just waded into the crowd, just beating people indiscriminately, just, just, just beating them. It was, it was, it was horrible. Martin was taken up physically, put in a car, and taken to the closest hotel for his own safety. And he said, we've got to have a peaceful march. If we don't do it here, we can't go to Washington. King was despondent. Others were losing faith in his nonviolent philosophy. Maybe his time was past. Martin Luther King was at a crossroads. Despite doubts, despite death threats, he refused to turn back. On the night of April 3rd, he appeared before a packed congregation at Mason Temple. It was thundering and lightning, and the rain was coming hard. And, he, and Martin didn't take a text. We called it a mountaintop speech. He just started speaking extemporaneously. And I'd not heard him. Of all the speeches at times I'd heard him speak, I'd not heard him like this. Like anybody, I would like to live. A long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I feel that he was going through a purging of his fear, that I no longer fear death. He always said he would not live to be 40. He didn't think he would. He wanted to, but he never thought he'd live to be 40 years old. He was 39 when he was killed. The next day, meeting with aides at his motel, King seemed rejuvenated. As evening approached, he stepped out on the balcony to talk with Jesse Jackson and others. And we're on our way to Reverend Billy Kyle's home for dinner. And I remember we had our our little band there from Chicago, Ben Branch and some musicians, and we were going to have a big rally at Mason Temple that night after dinner. So I was coming across the courtyard, and he said, yes, we're late for dinner. I said, Doc, I've been waiting for you. He said, but you don't have your tie on. I said, Doc, you know a tie is not a prerequisite for dinner, just an appetite. He said, boy, you're crazy. Then he said to Ben, he said, play my favorite song tonight for me. Precious Lord, Ben said, I will. And I said, Doc, he said, yes. And he said, yes, the bullet hit right here. And he just knocked him back against the wall, and 
it was over. Police were coming toward us with drawn guns. We were saying, the, the, gun, the bullet came from that way. It couldn't have come from this way. So why are you coming toward us with drawn guns? It came from that way. It came from that way. In black communities across the country, the reaction to King's assassination was a violent eruption of rage and despair. Rioting broke out in more than 100 cities. 20,000 army regulars and 34,000 National Guardsmen were mobilized. In Chicago, Mayor Richard Daley ordered police to shoot to kill. Nationwide, 46 people died. Martin Luther King was dead. America was burning. Many feared that the last hope for racial equality and nonviolence had been extinguished. This seemed like uh, the definitive statement. You know, America tried to redeem itself, and now you know they've killed the man who was taking us to the mountain. Even though we expected it, when it happened, you know, you, it's, you, you didn't know what to do. And we stayed in shock for a very long time. A very long time. At this point, I had been so knocked out of my middle-class assumptions that I didn't know what would happen. Perhaps the country could be reformed and Robert Kennedy would be present, president. Perhaps we'd be plunged into a civil war. I'd be imprisoned and killed. Anything was... It was... It was... It seemed impossible to tell what country we were in and what what was about to happen presenting history's best on PBS I hope you enjoyed the uh, show, the MIK celebration that happened.
participation playback number is 712-775-7476. Our participation code is 457591. Check out Damon. It's, uh, a, a celebrate MIK as well. And go to, um, to www.bipedempire.wordpress.com. Thank you. That's one love. But, um, yeah, so that was Stevie now getting back.
call recording has been completed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.